Tracy Albright. Oh, yeah. Donate on Good morning and welcome to 3CR Thursday Breakfast. A bit of a mash-up there. Uh, welcome to Thursday Breakfast at uh, 8.55am 3CR. It's an unseasonably warm day today. Um, first and foremost, before I let you know who's going to be on the show, uh, 3CR would like to acknowledge that we broadcast on the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri and Bunrung people of the Kulin Nation. And we pay respect to elders past, present and emerging and acknowledge that continued resilience of First Nations peoples in the face of ongoing colonisation and settlement. And we acknowledge that sovereignty was never ceded and a treaty was never signed. Um, I'm sure the guys at Sunrise uh, on Tuesday experienced a little bit of uh, what we might get to hear as an update today with the Stolen Wealth Games. The uh, protesters... uh, had a, uh, a a field day up there on on Tuesday, getting a fair bit of media coverage and exposure. So hopefully, um, after eight, we'll get to speak to Croft about what has been happening up there. But before then, we've got a pretty jam-packed show for you today. Um, at seven fifteen, we'll be speaking to Melanie Eagles. She's the uh, CEO of, of Hepatitis Victoria. And she'll be talking to us about, um, uh, I guess, stigma uh, in relation to hepatitis, but also um, telling us about some instalments and some short videos that are going to be running. I think the second one has just come out uh, as part of a a pack of 12, and also the livability grants that are happening. 7.30, we'll have Richard Amon, who's the CEO of Disability Sport and Recreation, talking about their organisation and really what their mission statement is. Um, and at 7.45, we'll be talking to Brad Martin, founder and managing director of Indigenous Connection, which is a which is launching tonight. It's a, it's a social uh, enterprise setting out uh, to better connect experience seekers with experience providers in the Indigenous space. Um, hopefully, um, yeah, we, we, we come across... Um, you know, we cover all these topics fairly. I know, I think Melanie, um, the CEO of Hepatitis Victoria, is sort of planning to talk about, um, I guess, the stigma and, you know, and, and the unfortunate circumstances of people knowing and thinking you have Hepatitis B. And hopefully she might be able to touch on uh, NAIDOC Week as well and some of the um, fast facts and viral hepatitis in the Aboriginal community. Um but as usual, at this time of the morning, we might see if we can go to a community announcement. This hospital is turning 125. They're calling on community to help rising funds. To support the vital work of the hospital by participating in a pyjama-themed fun run. On Sunday, April 15th at Princess Park in Carlton North. Registrations are now open. For more information, head to stvincentsfunrun.org.au. St Vincent is a 3CR supporter. CR Breakfast would like to say thanks to program sponsor, the New International Bookshop, for the financial support of this program. 
You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall at 54 Victoria Street, Carlton. We know you love our 3CR Radical Radio t-shirts and so do we. They're a bargain at $20 for adults and $15 for kids and come in black, white, grey and a cool light blue. To nab one of these beauties, drop into the station at 21 Smith Street or order by phoning 94198377. Or you can visit us online at 3cr.org.au forward slash shop. Come on, you know you want one. Oh, welcome back, welcome back. Um, I'm sure most of you are aware or have heard that, um, you know, uh, the, the founder of Facebook has uh, got himself in a little bit of trouble. Um, there was a big media crowd which uh, was closing in on Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg before his testimony to senators in Washington yesterday. And he was all, you know, he faced almost five hours of questions. And this was in relation to... You know, uh, the I guess last month the emergence of uh, that you know um, personal information of 87 million people was um, improperly harvested from Facebook and passed on to Cambridge Analytica, the marketing research firm tied to the Donald Trump's presidential campaign. Uh, but it sounds like what happened yesterday and what came out of it was that really the only person whose privacy is protected on Facebook is Mark Zuckerberg's and no one else's. But he did admit that he was sorry. Um, it's a bit, bit concerning. Uh, I'm sure most people believe that when they were sort of accepting those terms and conditions, they felt like they should have been protected. Um, and I guess it, it sort of um, you know leads into um, this uh, community announcement that I have here. So we've got a digital, um, well, we don't, but Mal's is holding a digital security workshop for activists. And what it will cover is basic culture concepts with a focus on digital security. So the workshop will give you an overview of potential risks activists face and some of the tools we can use to keep ourselves and our data safe. So this is happening this Sunday, the 15th of April, between 12 and 3 p.m. And it's happening at the uh, Amnesty International uh, location, which is 134 Cambridge Street in Collingwood. Uh, and they will be obviously asking for donations, um, you know, with uh, concession at $10, solidarity at 5 full waged at 15 So the Melbourne Activists Legal Support um, are having this uh, digital security workshop for activists. Sounds a bit like, um, you know, what, what's there to, to, to learn? But as you can see, even um, Facebook themselves can't... Um, uh, organize their own digital security. So if you can learn a little bit about what you can do to protect your um, organization and I guess your activist group, um, it will be worth going along to and, yeah, getting a few more ideas. Um, and there is a um, little bit of a story I was reading the other day about uh, a couple who were talking about bringing their families here. So this whole South African situation is still going. Um, Peter Dutton 
apparently yesterday received a written request to still fast track a special quota of persecuted South African farmers and, and um, and I guess he's facing a broader push to overhaul existing visa rules to allow Australian residents to bring in family members from overseas if their lives are in jeopardy. It's quite interesting because the whole manner situation, the whole refugee situation, most of those people that are in those situations would have family members here. There, I, I would say 80% of those are coming here because their family members are probably here saying, come over. So... You know, obviously we've been pushing for the overhaul of the existing visa rules to allow um, Australian residents to bring in family members from overseas, not just specific places, but all places. Um, doesn't matter whether it's a third world country or not. If you've got a family member, the rules should apply for everybody. And we woke up this morning and yesterday morning to hear that, I guess, maybe our the Stolen Wealth Games... Um, project and, and um, the protests have been working because there's some members of some countries who have absconded and left the Games Village. So there's eight Cameroonians out there uh, and I think there's two Rwandan athletes and there's maybe about six or seven more who haven't been accounted for who have all decided that they weren't going to turn up to their games. Um, they've had enough. You know, they, they can see the injustice that's happening and they've just decided, I'm going to do my own thing. Hopefully they're out there protesting with our crew um, and I'm sure there'll be people up in the Gold Coast and the Brisbane area who will um, help them out should they need some assistance. Some folks know about it, some don't.
Ah, you're back on 855am. Before we um, get to our next guest, I've just got a few more community announcements for all those budding uh, Martin Scorsese's out there. There is a uh, Sydney and Brunswick Road short film competition with a $3,000 prize, uh, and you can register your info or your interest at info at sydneyroad.com.au or more info is available at sydneyroad.com.au. So screenings in Sydney Road venues this April. Um, and essentially what it is is the Sydney Road Brunswick Association short film competition is a, bi- a biannual event with where talented filmmakers experiment with different genres, develop their skills and provide a great night out for all creative storytelling techniques. Um, short films... It must be submitted to be eligible and I guess um, yeah, the expressions of interest as well to win a $3,000 cash prize and I just noticed that they just closed so unfortunately you've missed out on that. Um, the other community announcement that I have is the Bayside Climate Change Action Group uh, as we know we're facing a global food crisis due to land degradation, resource depletion and climate change. Uh, there are two speakers who will discuss the changes we need to make to ensure our survival, so Nicholas Georges, an authority on food industry innovation, and Mark Donadu, president of Vegetarian Victoria, uh, and they will be speaking at 7.30pm Wednesday, the 25th of April, um, at the Hyatt Neighbourhood House in Hyatt. So the $5 entry fee covers uh, refreshments and other costs. And just quickly, um, it's always good to, to, I guess, you know, recap and, and let you know we know that uh, as long mandatory detention exists, the Australian people have a moral duty to make it difficult and expensive to implement it as possible. Wealth and convenience cannot be allowed to be more important than basic human dignity. Uh, so, you know, close the camps, bring them here. Hashtag can't stand by. So the national um, public CSB demos are on the first Saturday of every month at 2pm. And I guess the message there is that... Um, you know, we don't and won't stop until the camps are closed. There's one coming up on um, Saturday, May the 5th. That's at um, 1 o'clock, Flinders Street Station. And then the one after that is on June the 2nd. Um, and the website is facebook.com forward slash can't stand by. Um, and they've also got a blog spot, which is can't stand by hyphen blogspot.com.au or follow the hashtag on Twitter, which is hashtag can't stand by. Um, yeah, it's time now to get to our next guest. Um, I, unfortunately, um, people knowing or thinking that you have, you know, hepatitis B and or hepatitis C can mean that they might treat you differently to other people. Uh, yesterday I had the pleasure of seeing Pam's story in the second instalment of um, the Our Stigma story series where she was telling of her experience while undergoing a surgical procedure um, and this is part of Hepatitis Victoria's campaign to I guess educate people um, about the stigmas that are associated with um, having hepatitis. Um, we're now going to be joined by Melanie Eagles, the CEO of Hepatitis Victoria. Good morning, Melanie. 
Good morning, Ben. Thanks for uh, joining us on uh, 3CR. Pleasure. Yeah, look, I, um, I guess I just wanted to quickly, before we got into, um, I guess, the negative social attitudes towards, uh, you know, I guess an aspect of someone's health, uh, especially in relation to hepatitis, can you just give our listeners a little bit of an insight as to the role that hepatitis Victoria plays um, in tackling um, some of the issues um, relating to hepatitis? Certainly. We're the peak not-for-profit, uh, I guess, consumer-based body that's uh, responding to hepatitis and seeking actually to improve liver health uh, for all Victorians. We've been around for 25 years. And the types of activities we do are, well, having these good opportunities. Thank you for try- trying to inform the community about hepatitis and the issues around it and to encourage people, obviously, to uh, seek assistance uh, if they have hepatitis or to prevent acquiring hepatitis, and also to encourage those who might come into contact with people who happen to have hepatitis, which just means liver disease, uh, for them to uh, provide the appropriate care and support. We also run an info line. Uh, We do education in the community as well as workforce uh, training and we have a whole range of resources and uh, we run health promotion initiatives which are things like uh, education campaigns in schools and getting people to understand issues and risks and communicate around them through tools like you know art programs or uh, we do education in prisons you know a range of different activities. And I guess ultimately, yeah, I mean, um, that whole idea of, of, of liver, uh, the focus on liver is really where that chronic liver dis- disease and I guess gastroenterology are quite important. And people living with chronic hepatitis B, uh, there's a large number of them around Australia-wide, isn't there? And especially, you know, I think there's yeah, 57,000 in Victoria. Uh, well, that's actually probably with... With just hepatitis C mm. and about the same number with hepatitis B. So if you add them up, we've got over a hundred thousand, which is, uh, yeah, a surprisingly significant, uh, number for a condition that actually can be chronic if not treated and go on to liver cancer. And, and, and in it, fact, probably, uh, sorry. No, no, it's okay. I was going to say it's one of those diseases that a lot of people, unless you have it, it just don't know much about it or don't talk about it. No, no. So that's a challenge we have. Because there's such uh, poor knowledge, then many people don't. And because it can be chronic and silent and dormant for many years, people then aren't, I guess, seeking to uh, get the assistance they can actually get uh, to prevent the disease from progressing and getting worse. So in the instance of hepatitis B, because there's two main forms of viral hepatitis, mm. hepatitis B and hepatitis C, and, and B can be well managed so that it doesn't progress, and C, in fact, can be cured, cured because in the last few years we've had available on the PBS, so on our normal medical schedule, curative treatments that cure 95% of people. So that's a really important message to get out there. It's it's very unusual. There aren't a lot of diseases around that are serious and in such a way that can actually be cured. But we now have that available. Yeah, and I think I mentioned to you when I was speaking that I, I had a, 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 fan, a friend who 
has been working at the Royal Darwin Hospital and he was sort of, um, mm. you know, working as a chronic liver disease and um, gastroenterology specialist. And he was saying, you know, getting that message out to letting the Indigenous population know that, hey, this is curable, um, was quite a difficult task. Yes. Yeah. So I think there are particular challenges uh, because of the populations that are disproportionately affected, so mm. it really does affect marginalised communities more than others and just in using general population health statistics. So the Aboriginal community, as you say, uh, is has higher rates of both hepatitis B and C. And when you think about trying to tackle that and you think about remoteness and mm. other health challenges and sometimes... Uh, cultural issues, lower health literacy, and the fact that they're facing then so many other chronic conditions, you can just you know, see there, and as uh, your friend is aware, and those of us as well working in this space, uh, it's just very hard to uh, you know, change the trajectory there. But we do do some exciting things. We work, for example, with the Elbidgery Theatre Company, who have focused their productions in the last few years around bloodborne viruses, including hepatitis, and created exciting programs that they've then taken out to, uh, you know, young people's groups and schools with a high proportion of Aboriginal people and uh, informed people that way through storytelling, mm. uh, often with a bit of comedy, but uh, getting people to think it through. Yeah, and, and hear the message as well. Mm, and and now right. and I guess this sort of has led you down a path where you're utilising um, you know the, the the medium that is uh, video and I guess the medium that is um, social media. I mean you've got your hashtag uh, stigma uh, stops, um, mm-hmm. and I think there's more recent. Uh, Instalment, which is the second instalment of your Stigma Story series, was uh, a video called um, "Sorry, uh, A Visit to the Hospital" by Pam. Can you enlighten us mm-hmm. as to, yeah, um, how many more of these instalments you have, and what the main drive behind the, these um, dri- these sort of videos were? Certainly, and you explained it well in your introduction. It's a series of stories that we're rolling out to uh, try to allow people to understand the. Uh, real impact of stigma and discrimination on people and why it does create such a barrier towards people uh, understanding and acting uh, appropriately in response to hepatitis. So uh, the Stigma Stops campaign actually coincides with the World Health Organisation, World Health Alliance, sorry, similar campaign. So they've got one going and we're doing one to coincide with it as well but with our own stories uh, we're doing and in our own way so we're doing it with a monthly release of these personal stories uh, captured by uh, video and also through podcast so those same stories are available through our podcast channel and we've got that image of uh, you know the hand held out with with people saying stop it's, it's enough this uh, you know, is serious and has to stop. And through hearing the stories, so Pam's, you know, talking about her treatment uh, in hospital, the first one was from Alan who spoke about his treatment with a dentist, which you know, went on and caused him to have 
a much more serious dental condition because he didn't receive the appropriate treatment from the first dentist, we will, you know, get to understand the impact. And what, what we partly chose to pick up on stigma so directly was not only because of all the individual anecdotes that we've been hearing over the years, uh, the many years of working in this space, but also after a survey that revealed that uh, over 80% of people with viral hepatitis had experienced specific instances of either stigma or discrimination, and over 50% of them said that they had changed their behaviour and were less likely to seek uh, health services as a response. And I guess, you know, this this must play uh, a role in the fact that um, 84% of people living with hepatitis B in Australia are not currently engaged in care. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's what they call a cascade of care. You might get diagnosed uh, and, look, we have a fantastic health system and so, yes, people will get diagnosed, often too often later than they should because it is that chronic kind of condition and it's not something that comes to mind as, oh, perhaps that's what I've got or even in the mind of doctors or perhaps what they've got. But anyway, people might get diagnosed, but then the cascade drops down to those who actually uh, get uh, into care and have it managed and follow it up. Yeah. And, and that's why then the disease progresses and that's why actually, so for example in Victoria, over five people a week die as a result of viral hepatitis because oh. they've had this advanced condition that's progressed on to liver cancer yeah. and death. And I think more importantly then, you know, that whole idea of... Um making sure that those negative social attitudes towards a pretty chronic disease are being tackled. Um, there's an opportunity for for people to engage with these instalments, these videos, see them and maybe even share them with their friends who, you know, might know somebody who's experiencing um, some kind of, uh, you know, uh, liver disease and obviously might not know whether they have hepatitis or do know that they have hepatitis, but at least to take action. That's right, then that's uh, perfectly the message. <laughs> Share the information, think about uh, yourself or your friends uh, or your loved ones and encourage them to, uh, yeah, at least get uh, have a chat with the doctor and get uh, tested and uh, there's good treatments available. And I think the other important thing too is, um, you know, with in, in terms of, uh, indigenous people with chronic hep B compared to the non-Aboriginal population, uh, it's at 5.4%, which is practically double um, the non-Indigenous mm. community. So if we can, um, you know, I, I, I think NAIDOC week is coming up in July, so mm. there is that opportunity for, um, you know, viral hepatitis in the Indigenous community to, to get that message out as well and for us mm. to assist in that way. Uh, and that sort of takes me to, we'll have to try and sort of wrap it up, but you, you've got your liver ability grants as well that are happening? That's right. So we actually run these out each year. Just as a uh, bit of an inducement, because it's not as if we've got a whole lot of money as, mm. as a, you know, not a for-profit, but we have found this as a good tool. People can apply for a grant, and we quite a, inform groups who do actually work with 
those marginalised populations such as uh, the Indigenous uh, community can apply for a grant, they receive education sessions and then the grants to be used for some type of way of people getting together and often around food or some other appropriate gathering uh, mechanism and uh, spreading the word amongst that community. Fantastic. And they can go to the um, uh, Hepthick, uh website, can't they, to get more information? That's right. Yeah. Yes. And mm. I think what I have there, uh, I've got it somewhere, but I'll put it on our um, uh, website on 3cr.org.au. Sorry, I did have it written down, the, uh, w- the website link, but I'll uh, attach that as well. But we really appreciate you joining us on uh, 3CR Thursday Breakfast, Melanie, and um, yeah, keep up the good Thank work. You. Team, we appreciate the opportunity. Thank you so much. Have a good day. And good on you. That was Melanie Eagles, CEO of Hepatitis Victoria, talking to us about um, yeah, some of the, the, the stories um, of stigma that are associated with uh, Hepatitis B and Hepatitis C uh, and also some of the livability grants. So we'll put their website on our um, program um, link, but um, we'll be back in just a moment. Ah, I think that was uh, Lou Bennett with a fantastic song called Don't Sleep. Uh, It's time now to uh, get to our next guest. Um, There were, yeah, obviously, um, you know, lots of people living in Australia and around the world who have a disability, which sometimes means that, um, you know, there tends to be uh, barriers to them participating in sports or sports that they might have played before they got injured. Um, I was listening to a gentleman talk about a golf tournament that was coming up at a golf course um, for people with a disability, and I thought it would be fantastic to talk to somebody from an organisation that does work with, um, I guess, promoting health outcomes for people with a disability. So we've got in contact with uh, Disability Sport and Recreation, and joining me right now on the line is the CEO of Disability Sport and Recreation, Richard Amon. Good morning, Richard. Hi, Dean. How are you doing? Very well, thank you. Very well. Um, I guess, uh, yeah, for 3CR being a radical radio and, uh, and a public radio station, we sort of, uh, you know, tend to focus on, on um, issues of, of, of um, you know, the environment and, and, and obviously activism. But we also talk to people who, you know, are working in, in the disability sector to make sure that there's better outcomes for, especially the delivery of some of the NDIS and things like that. And uh, the question that sort of um, came to my mind was, well, you know, what are... What is happening out there for people who have a disability who might want to participate in sport? So I thought, look, I'll get somebody like you to give us a bit of an insight as to really what your organisation does and um, how you help people. Can you give us a little bit of an insight into our disability sport and recreation? Yeah, thanks, Dean. Well, it's a a massive issue in in society. We have various statistics that demonstrate how many people are actually active and we know whether it's the aged or, or the young or the people of different socioeconomic status. And, and the clear gap um, in society is people with disability. Um, they're the group that has the lowest participation rates. And what's really strange is they're the group that could probably benefit the most mm. from being physically active because there's so many physical benefits, there's so many mental health benefits 
and really our, our job is to really just try to make the the, the whole behaviour change pathway easier for people with disability across the various stages so that they can become active and really just so they can lead the best life that's possible for them and then really just want to help people reach their potential and being physically active is one of the key the key aspects of that so we're we're up for the challenge of, of trying to improve people's lives and trying to transform them so they can they can live their best life possible and um, we work across a number of different factors across the sector from people who have no idea about what's possible to working with different sporting organizations to make them more accessible and and ultimately trying to help people to have enough information at hand to be able to encourage their friends and colleagues who might have a disability to be able to get active themselves. So it's a, it's a massive job. We've got to try and transform all society, really, to, to make it more acceptable and more welcoming for people with disability. But um, we're doing a number of programs in a number of different areas to, to try and make that come true for people. And, and I think, yeah, I was reading that, you know, that whole your mission statement being to provide and promote um, positive health outcomes for people with disability through participation. I mean, what, what do you think is holding disabled Australians back from participating in recreational sport? Well, I mean, if you consider the, the, the concept of someone who has a disability, they, a lot of people um, aren't aware of really what's possible. Sometimes mm. when, when they get in contact with us and we can, we can open up their, their perspective about what's out there, then people can, can generally find an activity that, that, that's suitable for them or, or we can help them with some equipment to get them started or, or we can help them potentially with some training in, the, in, their, in their environments where, where they're at to to make their leisure centre more accessible or their sporting club more accessible. And, and so the, the, the demand is, is, is definitely out there. The, the Australian Sports Commission did a, did a survey a few years ago about people with disability and there was about 75% of those who weren't active said that they wanted to be active. Mm. So there's a real huge demand that's out there, but the, the systems and the processes are, are catching up. There's a lot of great work that's being done, but it's, there's still a lot of, a lot of areas that need to be improved and, and we're a, a relatively small organisation, but we work across a number of areas to try and make, make that um, a bit more accepting for people with disability. We work, um, we're training school teachers, we're training leisure centre staff, we're training sports, sports club uh, volunteers to try and make their, their, their programs more accessible for people with disability. Because what we do find is that a lot of people have the desire to help people with disability. Mm. People really want to make it easier, but they don't have the information or the knowledge. So... Generally, the, the the first point of call, if you don't have the knowledge, is to do nothing. So yeah. what we're trying to do is to bridge that gap and say, well, hang on, get in there, have a go, have a conversation, listen to what people can and can't do, adapt or modify the activity so that they can do at least something and get started. And generally what you find is is that once people actually get started, uh, not only the participants but also the, the organisations that help them, that they get enormous outcomes and they just feel incredibly powerful about being able to see lives being changed in front of their eyes. So it's, it's a really amazing and, and incredible uh, part of work to be involved with. And, and we just need people to, to, to get more involved. And I think some of the links between things like Paralympic Games and I guess even with the games on now, people seeing people with a disability, I think that the movement around inclusion has obviously changed and is changing over the years. And the real question is probably now it's not so much why we should do this or reluctance to do it, it's, it's how you do it and how you get those people to, to, to find you and get involved. 
Oh, exactly. I mean, I mean, a great example, I mean, the state government has done a huge amount of work over recent years in, on the gender issue and really helping more women and girls get involved in sport and recreation. And, you know, they've set up a whole office for, for women in sport. And, and that's terrific for, you know, I'm all about gender equality and I think that's um, getting some fantastic outcomes. But uh, the reality is that the, the, the gaps in participation are much lower for people with disabilities. And there's a 1.1 million Victorians with disabilities. So there's, there's a huge, a huge uh, market out there that needs to be helped. So we'd argue that the, there should be a, a dedicated office of people with disability getting involved in sport and rec within the government that would help deliver a lot of these training programs and resources that, that, that we try and provide. I mean, we're, we're, we're a charity. We rely on community donations to allow us to exist. So we, we do the best that we can with, with our limited resources, but we're going to be talking to the government over the over the coming months leading up to the state election, really looking for a, a whole change in mindset to really get behind the issue about people with disability and ideally set up a whole office that really dedicates itself to this task of really addressing this really serious problem about people with disability not being as active as the rest of society. And I think um, getting back to, uh, I guess, the core... Um uh, importance of that participation is that and then it has that flow on effect you know I mentioned earlier that you know we've, we've covered issues here about disability care in the NDIS and what is happening to people with a disability and how the rollout has been happening it has that flow on effect in, 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 um, in, you know, reduce, in reducing the, the reliance on care but maybe making sure that you have better health outcomes for the people who are participating in sport Oh, absolutely. I mean, the, I mean, the NDIS is, I mean, there's somewhat of a danger that people mm. think the NDIS is going to be the, the, the magic wand that's going to solve everything. And the reality is that, um, get, getting sport and rec, um, support within someone's NDIS plan is not an easy thing. And we're yeah. hearing lots of conflicting stories about some getting some, um, packages that help them and some, some getting not very much at all. So, there's a real danger that the, that the community and, and the broader, you know, the, the corporate sector think that, oh, well, that, that problem's solved now, so we can sort of leave that alone. But the, the reality is that there's a massive amount of work that still needs to be done to help people get involved in sport and rec. And, and we know that the benefits that it provides to people are huge, and, and it, it actually saves money in the long run with, with less hospital visits and, and, and greater functional capacity that people can live um, their most active and productive life for as long as they can. But the benefits are massive, and from an economic point of view, it just makes sense that more resources are put into this because it's going to help in the long run to to help people be less reliant on other services and programs. And I guess that might even be, I mean, obviously things like cost and being able to get from A to B to get involved might be one of those, uh, you know, barriers. But things like, I guess, you know, unlike education, sport is probably then introduced as a as a context more so than you know a, 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 I guess a valuable need for somebody with a disability to go and participate in. Yeah, well, it's, it's, it's what we like to think is that everyone has the right to live their best life yeah. possible, um, and and for, for most able-bodied people, it's pretty relatively easy to turn up at a sports club or a yeah. centre and just say, oh well, I'll put on my running shoes and, and away I go. But for the for the, re, the reality is for someone with disability that might be a, it might be a three hour exercise yeah. to be able to even just turn up at that yeah. leisure centre or, or at that sports club and you, you need to have the desire to do that in the first place and you might need some assistance with transport you might need some assistance with a carer or, or with equipment um, and, and so there's, there's a huge number of barriers that need to be overcome and, and they're not simple but um, the the reality is if we have a, a, a real dedicated process to help people 
get through those various barriers, that the benefits that, that they get are extraordinary. And the ultimate savings from an economic point of view in their less reliance on, on the hospital systems or or on a whole range of other services that they've got um, is going to make a lot of sense. And, I mean, we see people who come to us who, who, who've done not much at all and, and We've had one girl who came to us who hadn't really been active at all and we ended up taking her on a 500-kilometre cycling challenge through Cambodia and Vietnam and came back home a, a completely different person and much more confident and had been able to get employment since. And so her whole life's been transformed really through the confidence that she that she gained from being able to, to get involved in a sport or rec activity and, and really discover that her life is, is, is much more has much more potential than what she originally thought that it was going to be. And um, we always uh, tend to get time uh, time escaping from us. But I know you've obviously also now launched uh, AFL Wheelchair with, I think, four teams that have just started and just formed. How, how can people help your organisation? I mean, you mentioned that your not-for-profit organisation and volunteers are obviously crucial to being able to help pe- um, people with a, a disability participate as, as a basic human right, I guess, of, of playing sport. Yeah, yeah. Well, two aspects there. I mean, we obviously we'd love people to help us out either as a volunteer or, or even you know donating financially to us, or, or if they're working for a company that might want to sponsor us in one of our programs, you know, we we welcome that. So I encourage people to go to our website, which is www.dsr.org.au, and you can find out a whole lot of information there about how you can help. And you mentioned the AFL wheelchair program that we're that we're starting off, um, we've got wonderful support from five AFL clubs who've now aligned with us to enter teams in the first ever Victorian Wheelchair Football League. So we've got Collingwood, Hawthorne, Richmond, Essendon and St Kilda again that have teams in this league. Um, and that's starting at the Burundara Sports Complex on May the 6th. There's going to be the first round. But this, uh, this weekend, April the 15th and April the 22nd, we've got some come and try sessions for people to come along and and have a try of this brand new sport of AFL wheelchair and, and see whether they'd like to get involved in, in the team. I um I, I, I had a colleague of mine mention that they've tried it as a wheelchair sport, wheelchair basketball, and it's quite addictive even for someone who is not disabled. You know, he's gone back and played a few times, and he said it's uh, it's quite challenging and quite a physical workout. So for people out there who have never seen it, this is a fantastic opportunity to maybe combine their love of AFL with going to see, um, you know, an event that is hopefully going to, to continue as well. Oh, exactly. I mean, personally, I, I'm able-bodied, but I've actually been playing wheelchair AFL for the last three years, and yeah. it's um, it's an incredible sport to play. And I love it because it means I can I can go on the playing field and I can play with some of my mates who do have a disability. And, and once we hit the court, we're all equal together. Mm. And, that's, mm. and, and it's males, females, old, young, with a disability, without a disability. So it's it's... It's a really truly inclusive sport, and it's it's one of the um, the most fun uh, activities that I'm involved with. So we're, I'm, I've actually been drafted to play for the Collingwood team, so I'm I'm looking forward to representing the, the black and white. But um, other other people might be interested in trying to try out and, and be able to potentially play for for one of your AFL teams. And and we're really hoping that this this league is going to give people many opportunities to participate, but also just to raise awareness amongst the general community, people who will come along and watch and, and see what's happening, to really raise their understanding that the people with disability have the rights to, to play sport and they'll be able to see what's possible for them and, and it might help change their attitudes and awareness when they come across someone maybe in their workplace or 
or in their leisure centre or sporting club or, or in other aspects of their life. And that's that's one of our, our other main games, our other main objectives is to really change the, the world and the society about how they accept people with disability in a whole range of their life activities. Well, Richard, thank you very much for joining us on 3CR Thursday Breakfast. And, um, yeah, we appreciate you giving an insight into um, disability, sport and recreation. You, you have a good morning. Oh, thanks, Dave. Just one quick thing. Uh, we've got our wheelchair rugby uh, invitational tournament at Caroline Springs this weekend. Some of the best players in the world are playing in a... Uh, we've got 40 players from all around Australia who come into Melbourne to be able to play. So at Caroline Springs Leisure Centre, uh, the Melbourne Wheelchair Rugby Invitational event, uh, between about 9 and 4 each day on Saturday and the finals on Sunday will be at 1 o'clock. So come on down there to see some world-class international wheelchair rugby action. Fantastic. Thanks, Richard. I know you've got a great events calendar so people can see that. We'll put your link on our website as well. But uh, have a good morning. Terrific. Thanks for your time, Dan. Thank you. And that was uh, Richard Amon, the CEO of Disability Sport and Recreation. on 855-AM-3CR. It's um, just gone past uh, quarter to eight, and it's uh, time now to, uh, yeah, organise getting our next guest on the line. Uh, Tonight there is a launch of a two years in the making um, social enterprise called uh, Indigenous Connection. To find out a little bit more about that, we are joined by the founder and managing director of Indigenous Connection, Brad Martin. Good morning, Brad. Good morning, Ed. Thanks, Thanks for joining us on uh, 3CR. Sorry, we're uh, just a little bit uh, late getting to you, but we appreciate you joining us on 3CR. Perfect, mate. Appreciate the opportunity. Yeah, so you've got the uh, the launch of this uh, fantastic project that you've been working on for the last two years tonight. Um, tell us a little bit about uh, what Indigenous Connection is all about, please. Sure. Yeah, that's right. It's two years in the making. Uh, I've been living in the East Kimberley, um, Northern WA, for the past four years now. Um, and that's basically where why the whole project has come to life. Um, essentially what we've... Um, what we've created is a hybrid version. So we've created a digital version of the traditional map of Australia. So all the different language groups, all the different land areas, um, and we've created a hybrid version of that map with Google Map, which then gives us the ability to be able to create routes and travel plans and to, um, yeah, you can plot a course from, uh, create a trip from Melbourne to Darwin, say, and you'll be able to see all, you'll be able to see all the traditional countries that you're heading through on your trip, um, and we're also inviting um, traditional owners and land councils and ranger mobs to be able to um, upload cultural experiences that are publicly accessible so that drop-ins light up the whole way between Melbourne and Darwin, and um, users can better engage and better recognise First Nations people as they travel. 
And that that whole idea is, um, I mean, even when you when you look at a place like Victoria, when you look at the Indigenous map, there are so many different. You know, you've got I think even in the Kulin Nation, um, you've got the um, uh, the, the the two sort of different. You've got I think the uh, Wurundjeri people, but then you've got the Bunurong people, um, yep. and then. So that's a fantastic concept to be able to give people the opportunity as they're travelling through to, um, yeah, have a look at how, um, you know, the, 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 the different mobs and different cultures lived from the Kimberley to anywhere you're coming from, I guess. Yeah, exactly, mate. And there's a lot of people that um, just don't know that this is the story and this is the reality. Um, and we're just, you know, continually, yeah, have been taught over the decades before us that, you know, we've got the federal map of Australia and and that's all there is to it type thing and we have these Aboriginal people that yeah we know a little bit about but um yeah nothing too much but yeah there's just it's it's well it's well documented now that there's a huge demand from the tourism sector um of people that just genuinely want to embrace culture and want to engage with cultural experiences so that's that's essentially um Part of the reason as to why Indigenous Connection exists and the other um, real driving um, influence as to why we exist is that we're, we're really trying to support cultural economic participation. Mm. So we're really trying to support Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people that um, want, to, want to embrace their own culture and share those cultural experiences with an audience who are travelling to their country and they're interested to engage with that mob. So, you know, they're happy to pay them to um, engage and to learn. Yeah. Um, and as a result, you know, that traditional owner is able to um, preserve culture, um, share the knowledge and to um, make a make a buck at the same time. And, and I guess, um, you know, for, from the two years that you've been working on, that there would be strong enough evidence that w- that would show that, you know, those who participate in an arts and cultural, or Indigenous people who participate in an arts and cultural activity are probably more likely to, to have higher levels of uh, subjective well-being on, on that sort of high level, you know, be, being yeah, able sure. to have, um, uh, I guess, yeah, being able to, to use your own culture and your own identity to, um, you know, earn a living. Yeah, sure. We really, you're satisfying. This is, this is the whole point. Is that, yeah, in the community where I live, Wyndham, East Kimberley, um, yeah, it's a pretty dysfunctional community, um, in terms of the health of the community. Mm. Um, you know, we're contributing to all the negative data that, you know, exists in gap reports and things like that. That, you know, when we're talking about domestic violence and we're talking about, um, poverty and we're talking about, um, attendance to school for kids, etc. Yeah, so all these um, social um, factors are occurring in the community and that's the thing that really um, started Indigenous Connection and started, gave me the thought is that when I was walking around the community four years ago, I was, yeah, I was like, yeah, there is an economic problem here. There is poverty here and sure, poverty is contributing to the dysfunction that exists within this community. And then I was taking kids out bush and I was fishing with the kids and I was talking to the kids, you know, so, yeah, what's the vision? What are you going to be doing, you know, in a few years time when you, you know, you leave school or whatever? So like, oh, well, nothing, Brad, you know, what, what, what else should I be doing, you know? And, you know, there was this real lack of vision. Um, and, you know, when I delved deeper into that, I found it was, it's the loss of culture that's, 
um, contributing to the societal dysfunction um, equally as much as um, the economic challenges that are contributing to the dysfunction. So for me, that was, you know, when I was then hearing um, from state and federal government that we need more Aboriginal employment, um, for me, that was like, well, you know, take a look around our community. You know, where are you going to get employed? There's no, there's no employment opportunities here. Yeah, because yeah, so governments keep talking about creating sustainable jobs, providing training and supporting business growth and development. But if there's no businesses... How, exactly, there's how no employment. You, yeah. Exactly. So for me, so, you know, what we, in terms of the economic challenge, what we, you know, first and foremost, what we need is Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander businesses. Yeah. The employment will follow that. And to make, to improve on that, yeah, to, to, to tackle this loss of culture challenge, then we need to somehow combine culture with business. Um, so that's where I was like, right, you know, I sat down with a few different families and I was like, yeah, if you guys want to set up a business, you know, and if you want, you know, I'm happy to help. Yeah. You know, if it's, if you've got a cultural story that you're happy to share with an interested audience that we know exists, we know that's traveling just around the corner, you know, then let's offer it to them. And especially, especially because they're, you know, Indigenous and Torres Strait Islander people seem to have such a valuable social, cultural, and economic contribution to uh, the the growing economy of most states, in particular Queensland, obviously in WA. So you know, and and as you mentioned, you still continue to face ongoing challenges. Why can't you, as a, as a social enterprise, be able to make sure that those uh, economic contributions are, are directly being started by you and, yeah, coming to you guys. Yeah, well, that's exactly what we um, hope to facilitate. The you know, Indigenous Connection, um, for, for some reason or another, is the first national um, platform to, um, to exclusively promote cultural experiences. Um, yeah, it blows people away when they hear that, um, but it is what it is. Um, you know, we turn the lights on today and, um, you know, currently we've only, you know, we've got you know, around a hundred free cultural experiences at the minute and, um, we're really putting the call out to, um, traditional owners and land councils throughout all of Australia to be able to, um, share, um, with us, um, the cultural experiences that exist on country that are publicly accessible and, um, that they're willing to have people visit and to engage and to teach culture and um, so it's yeah it's definitely we're at the starting point now and um, I'm looking forward to seeing this seeing Indigenous Connection in a couple of years and how rich of a um, research tool it's really going to be. And the uh, the launch is tonight as you mentioned can you uh, yeah just give us a bit of a plug I think you mentioned it's uh, in Gertrude Street. Yeah, that's right. But that's actually a bit of a private show. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, no, keep that one private. We're talking about yeah. the, 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 you know, the digital launch. Yeah, <laughs> the digital launch today. Yeah, but unfortunately, look, I would love to have a big party and um, to celebrate two years worth of um, um, effort into this project. But um, as you can imagine, we're um, running on an absolute shoestring budget, and mm. um, yeah, I can't afford to um, shout everybody a feed and. To catch up. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's fine, mate. Um, but if people want to sort of, um, I guess you know, uh, there is a great link there. Uh, you have that um, animation video, and we'll put all of those details yeah. on our website as well. But more yeah. importantly, it's that um, the uh, 
the, the mapping, you know, how you can sort of collate the right. cultural experience and data, and, and there, is, there is an archive section there that you've created. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.